0: The, a young boy who would eventually become Dr. Blizzard.
1: Hey, hold on. He's not a doctor. He's just blizzard. Oh, did
0: I say Dr. Blizzard? <laughs> Twice,
1: yeah. Yeah, he's not oh, the doctor. No. Um, you got Dr. Fair okay. and Dr. Wilbur right. Allen. He's not. I don't know why there, there I'm calling him. There are villainous doctors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I was. And maybe that's why I was confusing And I don't know why I'm calling him
2: Dr. Blizzard. Um, You're thinking of Dr. Freeze. <laughs> Wait, that's even <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. Mr. Freeze. <laughs>
0: Okay, okay. Let me just rewind a little bit. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there
2: to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier.
1: A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. right, the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs>
2: It's hot, it's hot out there, Let's, we all walk out there, very, very, very hot, open fire! Hello folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and tonight, with me, I have... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. Excellent. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic, and the other two hosts are challenged to bring films to the table that address the topic, meet the topic, buck against the topic. Uh, we've had it all, and, and uh, we love it all here on The Gauntlet. So tonight, <laughs> it was my turn. This week, I was up, and I asked the boys to bring me movies with villains. Villains that they enjoy. Specifically, I was sort of asking for for villains who are very charismatic, entertaining, you know, for one reason or another. Uh, a villain you like. You know, a villain you, you maybe hate to love. And there's... Certainly a lot of those in, in cinema history. So I wasn't looking for necessarily just, you know, pure bad boys, but villains who uh, we admire a little bit. Villains we could potentially be attracted to for one reason or another. And boy, we have uh, two very good bad boys this week <laughs> that uh, were brought to the table, and uh, both of whom uh, really revel in their their villainy at times. Uh, one film I'd seen before; I, I'm I'm a huge fan of it. The other I had never seen before, uh, and I was 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 very entertained by these naughty protagonists, <laughs> uh, which is what I like to call a movie that features you know a villain very prominently. You know, the villain that's sort of really driving the action. So you know, without further ado, we should just bring out our bad boys. Uh, so, Ryan, why don't you tell us or introduce us to your, your very good bad boy? Of course.
0: So when I was thinking about different villains that I could bring to the table, I was returning to some of my favorite on-screen villains Throughout film, and realizing so many of them came from the silent era. And I love the way a villain can contort their face on screen in old silent cinema. You know, they understood the power of a close up, um, and it was already such an expressive form of acting that you would find. So there were certain individuals who would just take it to an entirely different level. So when I was thinking about some of those people and some of those great faces, I mean, how could you not think of one of the great faces? in all of cinema, a man of many, 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 many faces. So many. (laughs) Uh, At least
2: a thousand.
0: (laughs) At least a thousand. And that would be the great Lon Chaney. So, you know, I was looking at some Lon Chaney films and there's one I really do quite love a lot. And that is the film, The Unknown, directed by Todd Browning. And in that film, Lon Chaney, doesn't have any arms or at least is pretending to not have any arms to sort of trick people as he's coming up with some nefarious schemes. But doing a little more research, I saw, wait a minute, there's this other film that I hadn't heard of called The Penalty from quite a few years earlier, 1920, where Lon Chaney plays a criminal overlord of the underworld of San Francisco without any legs. And he walks around the entire film. Well, I guess he doesn't really walk around in the film, but he he moves around Ooh. in the film uh, without without legs, and he has like a crazy contraption hiding uh, his legs. And I thought I have to check this out. And I gotta say. I was quite chilled by Blizzard. And so this film, The Penalty from 1920, directed by Wallace Worsley, adapted from a pulp fiction crime novel by a man named Governor Morris, follows Blizzard, you know, on his rise and his way of taking over San Francisco. But like any great film about a villain, it starts with a villain origin story. And that's when we see that a young Blizzard, as a child, was a victim of a car Accident, but he was also a victim of some medical malpractice where a young and an inexperienced doctor performed a needless amputation of both of his legs. And as this young boy sort of wakes up from an ether haze of, uh, you know, having this amputation performed on him, he overhears an elder doctor sort of bickering with the younger doctor and accusing him of this malpractice saying, you know, you acted hastily, you did not need to amputate this boy's legs. Blizzard's family comes in, happy to see that their son's alive, but feeling a great deal of loss, uh, naturally, over both of these legs. But Blizzard, you know what? In in that ether haze, he was conscious enough to hear that his legs did not need to be amputated. Um, there's a bit of gaslighting to hide that fact, you know, from the family, but. Blizzard grows up knowing that he should be a man who should be able to walk, and he carries that pain with him everywhere he goes. So then the rest of the film follows Blizzard as he's cracking up a scheme of sorts, which we'll go into further detail later as we chat about it, of sort of taking over San Francisco and developing his criminal network. All the while, the daughter of the doctor who performed this amputation, a woman named Barbara, uh, is an artist. And she puts out a call in the newspaper looking for someone who resembles Satan because she wants to sculpt a face of evil. And as I said, Lon Chaney, of those thousands of faces, without a doubt, Satan can be found uh, in in some of those. Very (laughs)
1: easily accessible in the Lon (laughs) Chaney catalog.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and definitely in more than one of the faces that Lon Chaney is able to to portray in this film particular. You know, he rushes in recognizing that daughter's name, and it all relates back to his great revenge plot to, you know, take down this doctor. And yeah, it's, you know, it's a really exciting film. It's a thrilling film. It's very much in the style of the Fouillade serials uh, from the early, you know, 20th century. It's kind of a direct, not particularly flashy, gothic thriller, but what is flashy is this performance. And it's a Just an absolutely delicious villain that you love spending time with, you love looking at, you love watching him move, you love watching him express all of his emotions. And play the organ. And and play the organ, of course. So yeah, I had an absolute blast with it. I'm excited to talk about it. And that is The Penalty from 1920. Thank
2: you very much, Ryan. Marsh... What about you? What did you bring to the listeners this week?
1: Well, this was kind of a kind of just like a knee-jerk reaction uh, on my part, but I'm going to try and intellectualize it for a second because uh, we're we're here, you know. Uh, and and I was thinking, you know, you said Andy specifically at the end of last episode, uh, "Good to be bad," you know, that kind of framework. And when I when I think about that, I think about Charles Williford who wrote some of the most entertainingly despicable people uh, I've ever encountered in fiction. And his, his career as an author is full of uh, these kinds of characters. And so I immediately thought of the 1990 film adapted from Williford by the director, George Armitage, Miami Blues. And this is uh, a personal favorite of mine going going way back. And I love the novel as well. And it's got a, a very sort of charismatic villain as well, like Ryan's film. And uh, so in the case of this film, I think the best way to get into it is to describe uh, the beginning. The credits roll over spirit in the sky. And that gives us clue number one. And as the film opens, we see our naughty sort of semi-protagonist in an airplane in the clouds like a spirit himself coming into this film and he lands at miami airport steals someone's luggage and breaks the finger of a hari krishna on the escalator at the airport uh and just is you know going about his day as this sort of ruthless sociopathic criminal pretending to be someone named Herman Gottlieb. And that intro- is introducing us to Alec Baldwin as Junior, who is the sort of sociopath at the center of all the action uh, that takes place in the film. And uh, we soon learn that the uh, Hari Krishna whose finger he broke died of shock somehow in this sort of freak accident. And this brings into the story our other main character, Detective Hoke Mosley, Homicide, played by the great Fred Ward himself. Uh, And Hoke uh, starts to investigate this uh, apparent homicide. uh, And this leads him very quickly uh, to Jr., the Alec Baldwin character. And Jr. then assaults Hoke early on in the film, and he steals his badge and his gun and his teeth because Hoke has false teeth, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, and so he basically robs this man of, of his dignity and of his sort of icons as a police officer. And uh, from there, uh, it's a crime spree on the one hand with a little bit of romance and a sort of, you know, detective plot as we follow Hoke as he tries to get his... Uh, Life back essentially from this uh, from this guy, and uh, yeah, it's a very energetic film. It's a very lively film. Uh, it's one I find to be wildly entertaining and and also you know a, a good emotional ride as well. I think there's depth to uh, the characters. You know, don't let the pop, pastel colors, you know, distract you. There is some real emotion here in this film. And, uh, yeah, it's one that makes you kind of love this huge piece of shit at the center of it because, uh, he's funny and he's also, you know, you know, running around pretending to be a police officer. And I think, like, one of the reasons why, uh, he's such a great villain is because, He, you know, once he gets the badge and the gun, he, you know, just goes around saying like, I'm a cop and then just like robbing people, you know? And so it's got this sort of like, you know, critique of how all this works in society. But uh, I think on a broader level, too, like the Williford books, like it's just like a great on-location film. And I I read in an interview that George Armitage, who came up with Corman and, and stuff like that, he never shot on a studio in his life like 50-plus year career in movies, he only worked on location. And so uh, this film was produced by Jonathan Demi, who's from Miami and who uh, sort of ushered, you know, this film into being. He was originally going to be the director, and then he passed it to Armitage and produced it. And so his hand is over, you know— Uh, some of this film in that regard in terms of, like, how it looks and feels and where they shot and stuff like that. Like, he had a lot to uh, do with it. And, of course, it's a beautiful film shot by Tak Fujimoto, one of the great cinematographers. And so it's colorful, it's lively. I could just go on about it all night. (laughs) So I'm just going to stop there and we'll... uh, you know, we'll get into the details, but uh, that's Miami Blues, you know. Thank you. Uh, and yes, you know, on a very like on a
2: very like selfish level as well. I was I was glad to see your choice because it is uh, one of my favorite uh, movies, Marsh, and certainly also one of my favorite villains. So I was very excited to to dive back in, to revisit it and, and to do so. You know, in the Gauntlet Studios, you know, a nice deep dive. You know, what's interesting in these films, and and even in your your introduction, Marsh, uh you know how you establish the the arrival uh, to Miami, and and really in the film of Junior of Alec Baldwin's character uh, Herman Gottlieb, uh, and and tying it to the song "Spirit in the Sky," it really sort of like just popped into my head when I was watching these two films back to back and, and, and really thinking a lot about them that on a certain level, you know, there's a, to me, a very deep connection uh, that I think can be read in that uh, both of these villains, both of these naughty protagonists, if if we want to even kind of call them that I, I think are related to perhaps the most original, the OG, very good bad boy, Lucifer, Satan, uh, another name he's called. You know, in The Penalty, it is very direct, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the references are made over and over again to this man's connection to Satan. Uh, and I think it's there as well in Miami Blues, especially when you think about the idea of the fall, you know, the angel falling from heaven, uh, the 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 delusions of of grandeur, and also the idea, romantically uh, presented by certain writers and and you know creatives and artists, that that Satan you know he is a, a sort of very good bad boy he isn't purely evil that part of what makes lucifer so appealing is his his kind of human side his his connection to man to to all that is is best and worst in us and so i think both of these films uh, are very very related to that character and that idea of this this, this fallen angel, because both of these characters, you know, have good in them, and we will see them grapple with it, and other characters grapple with it, other characters who recognize that that there is, perhaps, underneath this surface of, of villainy and, and crime and, and murder and all these, you know, sort of nasty things, maybe someone worth saving, something worth saving, that, that these aren't characters who are, you know, 100% evil, who need to be destroyed at all costs. But perhaps, is there a way that they can be redeemed? So I think it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, perhaps, way to, to even start, you know, in, in, in connecting them to that figure of Satan. Of Lucifer.
0: Absolutely. I think the connection is quite apt. I mean, and I would say typically, you know, Satan is a very fun villain to hang out with in cinema. Uh, he, Satan himself is inherently perverse in a way when you think about it, because he is someone that has fallen from grace. He is he's someone that has something heavenly within him that has been rejected after after that fall. So The fact that it is a perverted vision of an angel is sort of embedded in the playful, evil quality of Satan. And I think that when that is a character trait that villains can hone in on in films, as they do in both of these films, there's so much room for play. And that makes for just a great time hanging out with a villain. I mean, I almost even considered bringing the Ridley Scott film Legend, just because mm. I love that depiction of Satan. I think it's extremely funny and interesting. It just wasn't in the cards. I didn't feel like us uh, enduring Legend this week. Maybe when we actually do a Satan week,
2: um, I'll bring <laughs> Legend. But no,
0: I definitely think that that is something these films absolutely
2: have in common. Yeah, because I think that's that's again, you know, part of what is is a sort of like, you know a, a great uh, model for for writers, you know, for people conceiving of, of a good villain. you know, something that is so key to Lucifer and Satan. certainly in you know, some iterations and some depictions is the very seductive quality, you know that that part of what makes, uh, Satan so powerful is his ability to seduce others in his villainy you know uh, to to recognize that that humans are also, by, by nature of how we were created or whatever, already fallen from grace, that we all have already fallen, you know? And I, I think that that's, that's key, you know, to these characters is the way that they're able to manipulate others, seduce others, uh, get people under their, their spell, for sure. Including the audience. Absolutely including the audience, you know? We like the crime. Yes. And that, you know, there's this weird kind of fantasy that, you know, this dark fantasy of so many people of, you know, perhaps imagining us committing crimes, imagining us killing our boss, imagining us getting away with it. And, and again, both of these films are excellent showcases for what happens when you can put a very charismatic and a very lively and a very outgoing uh, actor in one of those roles and let them let them just play and, and let them have fun with
1: it. Yeah, speaking of seducing uh, other characters, we should, yeah, establish, you know, there are parallels there too, right? Because in Miami Blues... Uh, Junior meets uh, Susie, who is uh, at the time a college student and prostitute at a hotel. Uh, and Junior sort of seduces her into being his, you know, girlfriend slash wife <laughs> slash gun mall. Uh, yeah, gun mall. Uh, and, and it's all, yeah, you know, a lot of scenes of them just like hanging out and him you know seducing her not necessarily sexually but emotionally like i'm no- i'm a normal guy mm-hmm. you know like I like you, you know, and he he does, and we'll get into that, right? But similarly, in uh, The Penalty, when Blizzard goes to model for Barbara, he initially is, like, charming her so much. Oh, yeah. Because he, like, knows all this stuff about art, and he's, like, citing from art history and stuff, and, like, Barbara's like, Wow, you—you know—you are fucked up looking, but like you're—you're you're so intelligent. Like <laughs> I, I love having you around, and this is, of course. Because she doesn't know the backstory. Sure.
2: And and again, especially compared to her, like, betrothed, I guess, or fiancé, oh, who's just a total fucking dick. This,
1: you know? That guy is such a fuck, <laughs> man. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he sucks. does.
2: <laughs> yeah, he does. But, you know, also in The Penalty, like, there's, there's, I believe, also another woman that is also kind of seduced by him, who is the, the, the sort Rose. of, like, secret agent. Yeah, Rose. Yeah. Who, the, the police, is it the police? It's like the, they, they say it's like the federal service the f- or something. Yeah, like, like some early iteration of the FBI or something. Basically, yeah. Right? Deadly,
1: yeah. 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 Who,
2: who send her to infiltrate his criminal organization. And she, uh, I think it's like when she hears him play, the the organ yes. is also somewhat seduced by him, yes. right? How can someone who plays so beautifully be purely evil, You know, that that same kind of uh, attraction there, that same sense of 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 something inside of a person that we can we can see, you know, this little spark Mm -hmm. of light in all that darkness. I definitely think that both of
0: the villains, part of their seductive power is their search for power. And they have all of this energy because they are. You know, searching for something, they have goals, um, and there's something inherently seductive about that for certain characters. Like they're gravitating towards them because of that energy.
1: And they never stop moving. Both of them. No, they're frantic. Both of them are always moving around,
0: you know? I mean, they both almost feel like they're coked up uh, to certain (laughs) extents, right? And I mean, I guess to sort of relate all of this. Together in a single intertitle that can be a key to unlocking both films in a way, and that is when, as you mentioned, Andy, Satan is brought up very explicitly in it, when the intertitle says, When Satan fell from heaven, he looked for power in hell. And I even think that that's something that Alec Baldwin is doing in Miami Blues when he's impersonating a cop. Right. He's he's searching for a new type of power that, you know, he he has a lot of control over people because of his sociopathic tendencies. But still, there's a certain power that's inaccessible to him, except here as he's pretending to be a police officer, he's unlocking. A whole extra layer um, <laughs> of power in his life and then by applying his sociopathic tendencies they feel totally at home there <laughs> so he, he's able to accomplish a great deal and then because of that he's fueled he becomes
1: a hyper energetic villain. They're both like driven by these fantasies you know and I think mm-hmm. that accounts for for so much of it and, and getting swept up in these fantasies, too, because, you know, in the in the case of uh, the penalty and I had seen this uh, before uh, fairly recently, I, I had like a Lon Chaney thing going on. Uh, and this was, the you know, probably the, the my favorite that I watched of like the last couple. And. The the aspect of the film we haven't talked about yet is is Blizzard is not just a, a criminal boss of the underworld. He's like plotting a like an insurrection yeah. uh, on a very serious level, and the feds are interested in him because he uh, allegedly sort of controls the communists. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah. you know an aspect the dirty of the, reds. Yeah, that's like there's <laughs> a there's of course like yeah this red scare. Aspect of the film where uh, Blizzard is like apparently in control of the Reds and thousands of malcontented foreign workers, and I don't know right. if that's just a synonym for communists, but like yeah. it felt like he really had many, many, you know, men. They show him in that sort of feuilleton style, like he has spies everywhere, uh, network, okay. the yeah. chauffeur driving the richest people around he's a spy, you know? It's like that kind of thing. Uh, This whole network of uh, paranoia. And, I mean, this is before Mabuza, you know? So, like, that shit was in the air, you know? Yeah, and on that level, like, it
2: really did remind me of... Mabuza. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, this idea of like you know, a criminal that is, you know, more sinister because he's politically motivated. It isn't mm. just that he's st- just stealing purses or whatever, you know, he's 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 perhaps going to take over the whole goddamn city. And who knows what could happen? The whole order can be turned on its head. So, yeah, you know, and it, it is interesting considering the time in which it was made when there was a huge Red scare going on in our in our country and labor uprisings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but in a weird way, you know, I, I, what I think I really admired about the penalty is that, on a certain level, I also took it as a as a as a as a critique of order, as a critique of the system. And again, why he he might be even more seductive because. There's sort of, for me anyway, I feel like a, a sympathy to him and, and to what he's planning, because, you know, what you said, Ryan, in relation to that intertitle, you know, about when Satan fell from heaven, he he found power in hell. I was reading hell yeah. not as the, the criminal underworld, but as San Francisco right. as, Me as a city in America. Well, they say and,
1: also in an intertitle, it is the wealthiest city in the world.
2: Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And same thing with Miami in the eighties, right. Bro-made in the late eighties, yeah. you know, again, this idea of like, what is hell? Like this is a movie that's coming out, you know, uh, after Reagan's America, like, you know, turned so many cities into like hell and, and Miami as this, this ultimate symbol of, of wealth and criminality and corruption. And, and, you know, on, on one side of the street, you have people driving around in fucking Lamborghinis. And on the other side, you know, people eating garbage, you know, (laughs) so it's like, hell is the city city in America in two different points in history, of course. But, but, you know, on a certain level, some things change, some things stay the same. I actually on a funny level was thinking about the penalty, like I was reading it as like, contemporary san francisco <laughs> I was just imagining like <laughs> me too google headquarters you know all this shit and i was just like of course it's hell and here's this guy who just wants to tear <laughs> it all fucking down yeah. you
0: know yeah i was seeing that labor movement as like yeah completely dismantling the tech utopia quote unquote that san francisco has turned into i think that spirit of the film like remains timeless in that sense uh, specifically but it's funny i mean not to like pat myself on the back necessarily but when I was asking you last week about the topic and trying to think like okay so do you want me to find a film where I agree with like what the villain (laughs) is uh fighting for like is that what I'm looking for just like someone I like hanging around with and you would just you know you clarify like oh it's loose you know like take it as you will but I was so thrilled with the penalty because apart from the fact that I liked hanging out with Lon Chaney And looking at his face at the same time, the quote, you know, without spoiling it yet, the quote unquote happy ending really bummed me out Mm -hmm. because I was like, man, you know, I was I was really with him, (laughs) you know, the film. And I think the film in a way formally is with him you know, yes, even if at oh, yeah. times the script isn't. It's it's designed to get you excited about being with this villain and fighting alongside him to achieve his goals because he is a wronged man. And the fact that he has the backing of, you know, a mass of discontented workers, <laughs> it's like, hell yeah, let's go.
2: you yeah. know. And I think that rapture is there embedded within the form of the film. Oh, 100%. I mean, and again, I think like, You know, Hollywood history is is and cinema history, I guess, more broadly is filled with that, you know, where Mm -hmm. where filmmakers have wanted to make a movie about something and then have had to just make sure that they tack on that like reformative happy ending where it's like you know, right. crime doesn't pay and, and he learned his lesson, right? You know, you can go as far as you want, but, but at a certain point we got to wrap it all up and clean it all up and, and reestablish law and order. And yet I think so many filmmakers have had a, a blast for, you know, 85 out of 90 minutes, like going exactly to those places <laughs> yeah. and then just you know, cleaning it up for the production code or the sensors or the studio or whoever to just be like, "Ah, eh, look, see the bad guy, you know, he doesn't win, right? We're saying, right. don't do this. But, but I think that's, again, for me in picking the topic, like where ultimately I wanted you to go, you know, whether or not you were sympathetic, like uh, with their particular cause to find villains that you kind of, yeah, like enjoy watching them do whatever they do, you know? And I mean, look, this movie opens in such a way that that really does, like, damn the prevailing order, you know? Like, we are introduced to bad doctors who did irreparably traumatize a human being, cut them in half, literally, and then lie. And because of their status get away with it. Oh, yeah. So from from that point on, I mean to me like yeah, the movie is 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 like how can it not sort of present this guy as as oh yeah. someone who who has a legitimate cause, right?
1: I mean yeah. it's crazy too thinking about it. The film opens right after the amputation. That's like the entry point into the film. And that's a very intense, you know, part to come into with having missed you know, like what actually happened, you know, and it is like it opens and it's like you messed this up. Yeah. You shouldn't have done that, yeah. you some, know, some like
2: sweaty, wide-eyed doctor yeah. being like,
1: "Oh shit!" And then it, you know, <laughs> of course, like a few minutes later, it's uh, twenty-seven years later, and it's like he's the most successful doctor in San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, just having his instructor explicitly say, "I will live for you." Like having that be our introduction to the mm-hmm. medical profession in this film is really aggressive
2: and incredible. It is so, it is so charged. I mean, I was really, really like, you know, like, holy fuck. Cause I hadn't seen this movie before. And, and I was like, wow, damn buckle up. Like this is, this is some pre-code shit right here. That's for sure. You know? Yeah. Cause
0: it's even, it's like adding insult to injury too, by just having the kid be conscious enough to Hear this and understand what's being schemed in front of his very eyes, right? Mm -hmm. You think almost typically in a film like this, he would be asleep, we would be given that insight into, you know, what the doctors are planning, but that he would grow up with this lie. But he has the—he's awake enough to say, like, "Mom and Dad, these guys cut off my legs." I heard them say it was <laughs> I a heard mistake. You. Yeah. <laughs> I literally just heard them saying that, and then the doctors, you know, with their status and authority, yeah. are saying, "Oh, he's no, a ether."
2: Woke. Ether. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because again, like to me, in like a lesser film or a more safe film, you know, you would have his origin story would have been. That the doctors needed to do that, and and he didn't think that they did and sort of like blames them for that. But no, he has a legitimate gripe, <laughs> the
1: most legitimate gripe of anyone in this film. I think, you know, Miami Blues also goes to, to certain, not as explicit lengths, but it goes to lengths to give us like a, a similar thing in terms of, Uh, A character who has been, you know, state raised in foster homes, spent his whole life in prison. He is just out of jail uh, with all that that implies. And uh, he is far beyond uh, saving, you know, whatever has happened to him. You know, like he's like, I'm out of jail. I'm going to do crimes like I've come to Miami to do crimes. (laughs) He's doing crimes five feet uh, into the airport when he gets off. He's doing crimes on the plane because he's actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, like he's making a fake ID. Yeah. He's already taken stolen stuff, maybe worse, you know. But you do get the sense that he is just this totally scarred and fucked up person from being locked up his entire life. Yeah, you know.
2: And also in uh Miami Blues, like as the film develops, like there is a a. a you know, at times an almost like satirical element of just like, again, America in 1990, like everyone's a piece of shit, everyone's corrupt, everyone's out to get theirs however they can, everyone's cheating somebody, lying, you know, the cops are are all dicks and assholes and, and in sociopaths themselves, maybe all
1: getting bribed. The, The
2: way that they like laugh over a corpse, like openly. I mean, it's like, it is at times so like over the top that, that it does to me. Yeah. become like satire, but, but yeah, you know, like it's a man who was raised by a system that just chews up and spits out and recycles guys like him over and over again. I mean, what would he do out of prison? You know what? What do any? What does any
1: felon do? Out- well, that's what he says. He says he's got investments, and I think you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like what you said earlier, Andy, like. There is that, uh, you know, in the novels, it's Reagan's America, right? And Williford is very attuned to the whole project going on. I mean, those books, as much as they're pulp novels, they're like documentary fiction about Miami. Like, he's always talking about how everything's changing in the 80s, you know? And that's, like, very present throughout, and, like, you get a sense of that. And his whole deal, like... I'm an entrepreneur. Like, he, like, says shit like that. So there is that, like, 80s mindset that he has. Like, all right, I'm a businessman. And, like, for him... That means you know robbing people uh, and and coming up with all these like just petty schemes basically sigma grind set.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do love then in comparing the way that these villains are introduced formally in the film, where we have Alec Baldwin, you know, committing all of these crimes himself, both on the plane, straight out of the airport, but then instead in the penalty. Blizzard is introduced slightly differently in terms of we we start like macro and we get smaller to figure out how his network works. So we start by seeing San Francisco and it being revealed as one of the richest cities in the world. And then as we narrow in, we go to a seedy part of town, the Barbary Coast, and we see Blizzard's minions take down a woman. They, like, commit a hit, essentially. The Just Barbary metal. Knife
2: yeah, knifer at a dance hall.
0: <laughs> yeah, and what was that? I, I can't remember. I forgot to write down that character's name. His, like, main disgusting minion man that's always, oh, like... Frisco Pete. Frisco
1: Pete, Pete. <laughs> Frisco <laughs> Pete. yeah. And that guy is tweaking out the whole time. I mean, he's ex- doing an explicit like heroin performance you yes. know uh, and I found it really funny I don't know if you guys saw this but the actor's name is James Mason
2: I did see that. Yes. Yeah, yes, I did. That's and it made right. me like do a double like take at a certain point. I'm like, is this just a very young James Mason? But no, it was not. Before. Well, that was caught. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was. I was like, how old would he have been? I was really doing the math, you know. Right. I like, got
1: very excited for a minute. But yeah, he just knifes. He knifes that poor woman, uh, and then immediately he just goes to see Blizzard, and Blizzard gives him safe haven, uh, which we're like, oh shit, like this is you know. And
0: clears it with the police rather quickly as well. There's (laughs) like a patrolman on the street and Blizzard, you know, has a little chat with them and everything's sorted, you know, nothing to see here. Um, And even that relates to, as we were discussing about the types of the way cops are represented in in Miami blues, you know. But yeah, immediately, like it's it's great how it's like it's again, we start macro and wide and we narrow in until then we there we is our our Joker. You know, we have Lon Chaney with his crutches, his like buckets on his legs, just strolling around town. And I guess we should like address the, the leg thing, because it's pretty incredible. The, I read a little bit about it. I guess you can go and see this contraption in, uh, the, funny enough, like the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles, where oh, the, wow. his costume was donated to, towards. But the way they had it set up was it, it was an extremely painful system where his legs were oh God, tied up. And he could, it it was so painful, he could only perform that way for seven to ten minutes. And it was against his doctor's wishes, because uh, it was just not a good thing to do to your legs. Uh, But he protested, he wanted it to be authentic. But yeah, his legs are tied up and then stuffed in those buckets. And that's how he's moving around throughout the rest of the film. And apparently, originally, too, because it looks so convincing, I think it does. Originally, the film had an ending that Revealed that Lon Chaney, the man, had legs. They wanted to clarify that for the audience, even though there is a brief moment in the film where we, we do see him with well, legs yes, and we we'll do. get to that. But it was something that was so successful visually that apparently at the time they felt the need to clarify that so people didn't think that Poor old Lon Chaney didn't have
2: legs for whatever reason. Oh, that he was <laughs> so committed to the role that he had them amputated. You know,
0: sure. Yeah. If anything, you'd think the film would want to do the exact opposite. Yeah. You'd want to build up that myth, be like, "Look at this guy! Like, uh, look what wow. he was able to
2: do here." Cinema was still fairly young, you know, and audiences <laughs> were very gullible. Was. I mean, remember, you know, the first time they saw that damn train coming at them, they all ran out of the theater <laughs> or whatever. I mean, but it,
1: this film did sort of, you know, this film really sky rocketed the the Cheney myth you know because of the production and because of what he went through it was publicized and this film made him more notorious than anyone you know and this was really like he was going to the stars after this shit you know and people read about this or heard about this this guy did what you know yeah yeah
2: Nowadays, you know they'll 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 put you on the cover of uh, Variety if you lose fifteen pounds or whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> but geez, yeah, and I mean that is I think what really immediately like drew me in was just the physicality of his performance in that contraption as you described it. Yeah. But also, you know, beyond just the fact that yeah he's 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 moving around on these these like stumps all of the like clearly like designed system that he's created in order to get around in his his like den or his base you know the the things like the they're like they're like pegs that yeah, he like uses. pegs on the walls so that he can you know when he needs to like he just like climbs up and like pulls himself up by his arms and again I was very impressed the physicality of just being like dude just like lifted himself up by his arms climbed up this like wall like to open a, a peep slot so he can like at people with that like insane look on his face you he's know, got
1: like, to check in on the hat factory that he's got <laughs> yeah going. he's like
0: this like straw hat sweatshop yeah yeah i love that the film doesn't make it clear immediately what's going on just we're introduced to his sweatshop of all of these women who are so terrified of him as they're putting together all of these hats that all look identical and that's another thing i think the film does really well is using his size, like his new size as being a much shorter man uh, without legs to the advantage of like just the compositions of the film. So I love in particular that sweatshop scene when he climbs up on top of the table. It feels twice as tall as a man with legs simply because he's up there hulking over them with his crutches. He's like a, I mean, he's like a hulkish figure. I mean, Lon yeah. Chaney's a big guy, but that image is is pretty spooky. You know, I would be, I would be horrified to work for for a guy like that. I just
2: kept, I just kept like thinking in my head, I just kept going like, he's goblin mode. Like he's full goblin mode, <laughs> yeah. you know? And he's sliding s- down poles. Sliding down poles, yeah, because you know, stairs are a bit more of a pain in he has. Like his whole evil villainous base that he has and, and, and how it's been designed to be, handicap accessible, particularly for him, like added another element of, of, yeah, just very, very like unsettling mise-en-scene in many respects.
0: Yeah. I was also rather impressed too with the editing in this film and certain moments that involved cross-cutting because anytime there is cross-cutting of any sort in a film from the early 20s and even obviously beforehand, it just hits different because it feels like it was just such a radical idea, you know, it was Mm -hmm. something that was so heavily considered. It wasn't something that was natural, um, at the time necessarily that like cross cutting was just embedded within cinematic storytelling. If they were ever going to do it, it was because they had an idea and it really meant something so I love there's a really cool early example of that when we go to the federal secret service and Lichtenstein the man who's running it is chatting with Rose who is going to be his agent that goes in to infiltrate Blizzard's headquarters and he even says like this is such a dangerous case that I hope you say no because I really like you Rose and <laughs> this Blizzard guy's a real piece of work but all the while this entire conversation they have is in enhanced, because they're cross-cutting between the Federal Secret Service outlining their plans of infiltrating Blizzard's headquarters, and then we're back in Blizzard's headquarters as he's chatting with his minions, and also just scheming up some evil, naughty business. And I think that that parallel, to me, felt purposeful and interesting, even in the sense of the, the Federal Secret Service here is being represented as a nefarious group that is also, you know, organizing things with their minions, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. These two
1: systems aren't that far apart. No. Absolutely. And they're, they, they keep that sort of, like, intercutting structure, like, throughout the movie. There are extended scenes of the, you know, the secret, the secret service agents, blizzard. And that, I, I loved how that just kept going. Um, and additionally, Ryan, to your point, uh, for a film from 1920, there is some sophisticated flashback and flash forward work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I adored the flash forwards in this movie, which are essentially, his fantasies for his big Mabuza-like plan to take down San Francisco. And that, you know, the way they did it, very clear, very purposeful, and and just just really, really well done, you know? And huge. It felt so huge.
0: That's the thing. I mean, they just, they're not... Coming up with tricks necessarily to make it look like there's all these bodies there. They had plenty of extras, yeah. so we get these wide shots of San Francisco, and the restoration was really nice. So I mean, just seeing all of those people running around the streets Robbing of San Francisco, yeah. yeah, tearing it <laughs> apart, and especially funny because then it's later revealed that all of these foreign workers um, are going to be wearing these straw hats like that as their signifier that they're all a part of the same collective. It's that's funny that that's what they chose as their their uniform. I guess cheap to reproduce, you know? Yeah,
2: it looks like a gardener's hat. Yeah. You know? And yeah, there's the great, that great bit where, like, yeah, as you said, we, we first see them making these hats and we have no idea what the hell they're for. And I'm just assuming it's like just a. You know, he's just selling them on the cheap. You know, he's like, yeah, running right. some sweatshop. And then, as yeah, the the plan starts to unfold as he describes it, it's like first everyone gets like handed a, a rifle, and then they get handed a hat. And they get, and they just all like <laughs> throw
1: those things on those floppy straw hats. Are you a malcontented worker? Are you a communist? Take this rifle. Yeah. Take this hat. Let's yeah. go. You know, here's your, gun, here's your hat. <laughs> we're infiltrating. Go, Pizzle.
2: yeah. We're going. We're all going goblin mode. We're gonna fuck yeah. up San Francisco. And there, Yeah,
1: it is a really thrilling sequence. And as Ryan mentioned, because it's he's just telling an associate that this is his plan uh, in his fantasy. He has legs and is conducting the action like, uh, you know, a great leader. Like he alludes to, he wants to be like Julius Caesar. Yeah, what do they say?
2: The, <laughs> with with the pleasures of a Nero and the powers of a
1: Caesar. Exactly. And so he, in his vision, has legs, and they are yeah looting San Francisco taking it over, fighting the cops, fighting the military. Uh, It kicks ass. I also think it's
0: just a really nice touch too that his rapturous telling of this story is addressed very explicitly by the man he's telling it to as when he says, You're speaking like a man with legs. Like how could you accomplish this? And it's then made explicit, right? Of course he has legs yeah. on screen. He's got um, this
1: covered too. He's got a plan
0: well, to yes. make that happen. He
2: does have a plan. Yeah, that.
0: yes, he does. Yes, he does.
2: And again, a very sophisticated thing because, you know, narratively it's it's like this 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 hook, right? Of us kind of being like, wait, what's that? Why does he have that? you know and on a certain level you're like is this just again in his in his delusions you know in his madness he does see himself as a man with legs. And as the film develops, you realize like, okay, he, he planted that because there's, there's more to it, right? Yeah. The, 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 he'll, he'll get to there, you know, first we got to make the hats, but I got to plan for those yeah, legs. Cause that well.
1: intertwines with the, the other plot, the doctor revenge plot, because, uh, he, as we discover through Rose, the infiltrating agent, uh, blizzard has got an, operating room in the basement of his lair and uh this is part of his uh you know plan to get revenge as he's uh, seducing barbara the sculptor who's sculpting him as satan and her father asshole dr ferris who chopped off his legs the butcher you know uh, and he's of course you know gonna try to get the doctor to uh give him his leg legs back yeah yeah,
0: that that so that underground passage. I was going to ask you both if you've ever seen this. Um, is so in the film, the underground passage is through the the fireplace, like under a brick. There's a lever, and then the fireplace like lowers. Um, and this is going to be so regionally specific to our Midwest listeners, um, especially in the way I pronounce this word, but. Have you both ever seen at, like, that mansion at Cantigny oh, yeah. uh, that they have? Like there's an underground space from that fireplace, and that's where they would hide. I think they said that they would hide the children's Christmas presents there at like the Cantigny estate. Oh, my God. <laughs> have
2: you ever seen that? I mean, I, I've like, been there. I've seen that. I've but been I, there, I didn't, but remember. Not, yeah. I didn't remember that specific detail. Yeah, it was. The yeah, children's it was
0: <laughs> Because I thought that was so cool when I was a kid. And then so, yeah, that reveal of the fireplace housing both all of these rifles and this operating room. It was like a Proustian flashback to my childhood touring that little man. Well, not little mansion, but, you know, sizable mansion and (laughs) seeing a a whole fireplace go under the ground or like revealing secret spaces. Man, if
2: you have to build a secret passage like that to hide presents from your children you've got you're either like a really bad parent or you've got to like the shittiest kids ever that you have to <laughs> <laughs> go to that yeah. length You'd to have a safe <laughs> yeah i mean pluck them up in his shed <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's, yeah I mean, yeah you that's could really some, put them anywhere yeah know. that's no, I a
2: mean, that's some villainous rich shit right there you know <laughs> a secret passage to hide yeah. the, the the massive horde of presents you're giving your your Three children or whatever. Very suspect.
0: But yeah, so Blizzard's plan to get these legs by, you know, setting up the services of the doctor involves getting to him through his daughter, Barbara, who is Mm -hmm. an artist. And he finds out about Barbara because she posts in the newspaper, like in the classified ads... Seeking someone with a face like Satan's to pose for a sculpture. I don't know. To me, that's hilarious. The Dude, idea of of opening up the newspaper and seeing, "Do you look like Satan? Come on over."
2: Yeah, there's uh, a there's a specific line too in it that in her ad that says, "If you think you look like Satan, apply at the studio." <laughs> it isn't just like looking for a handsome. You know, it's just like if you think you specifically look like Satan. You know, what the fuck is that? And I, I love it because then when he does also, you know, uh, manipulate it so that no one else shows up, you know, he uses his network to be like, make sure I'm the only one who goes there. When he does show up on her door, I think the very first thing he says is some excellent judges think that I resemble Satan. Like it's this <laughs> the, the most like villainous thing you could say. It as you, Absolutely. As you approach. And yeah, that whole sequence, I was just laughing at how how uh, almost over-the-top it was, you know? It's funny
0: thinking... I, this is the one time I was disappointed uh, in my guy here by stopping all of the other people from showing up who think they look like Satan, because I would have loved a shot of all the people auditioning and, like, in the waiting room and how they oh, all yeah. interpreted their own features as being Satan-like. Because, again, what does Satan look like? Does he look like a gargoyle? Does he look incredibly attractive, right? Like... Devilishly attractive, you know. It would have been nice to see a bunch of people from 1920 who all thought they looked like Satan, like what they turned out to be. Gotta wait till
1: hell's a poppin' for that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. There's also something else that I laughed
2: at in that sequence because this is where he he starts to. Uh, seducer right when he's show shown up and and they start chatting because they start right like talking about art and sculpture and and he also has his own theories on art and sculpture and i think one of my favorite lines he's just like reading some book like and it's like some you know some book on on sculpting and he just like kind of throws the book down and says I could write a better treatise on sculpture myself, and I was like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Like, not uh, amongst all the other things and his plan to take over San Francisco, he's got very strong opinions on art theory and yeah. sculpture in particular, you know, and that this book is trash. Like, he's like a, a, a Hannibal better. Lecter's sophisticate, you know,
1: dude. Well, that's exactly what I thought. Player, as we've seen, yes, you know.
2: Oh yeah. And I I think that's what starts to make him so fun is that he isn't, and I think what makes so many other villains, you know, in this category of the sort of like attractive villain, uh, you know, appealing is that they aren't these sort of like one note villains. Like it's easy to just be like, I'm a criminal and I do it because I like crimes, you know, it's like, you know, again, you brought up like Hannibal Lecter, you know, what's, what's so disarming about him, seductive about him is his you know, the fact that he's a great conversationalist, that he mm-hmm. is an a that he has thoughts on things and the world. And I think great villains in many cases do and can. To them what justifies their villainy isn't that they're just like, I'm sick in the head, it's that they have theory behind what they're doing, you know? They have a justification for it, whether it's because they were wronged, they, you know, they, they see some, some issue with the way that the world is designed, the way that people look at the world. And, and this is really the moment when I, I think I, I started to like, myself, like, fall for him, you know? This whole sequence at the studio.
1: I also love that uh, Barbara is just randomly friends with uh, intertitle, Bubbles, a street waif. (laughs) (laughs) And there's just like this little child who's just kind of like spying on uh, Barbara and Blizzard, when this is all going on, yeah, I liked uh, Bubbles, and it's just like fairly inconsequential. I'm not really sure what Bubbles' function was, yeah.
2: He like warns her about him, right? Is right. that what Bubbles does? He's, well, like, he's
1: like, he's got a bad street reputation, you know. Bubbles may be a child, but he's a child of the streets, exactly. and he's like, that guy is like the baddest person in the Barbary yeah. coast, like yeah. that. That is Satan, you know, and yeah. it's also
2: in this scene too that. That we see the the direct comparison between Blizzard and the, the the handsome leading man, the the young doctor, the 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 fiance of of uh, the sculpt the sculptress. Uh, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but but when he like talks to her about sculpting, isn't he kind of like, when are you going to be done playing oh, yeah, with all? Yeah, he wants
1: your... her to quit sculpting and marry him.
2: Right. Yeah. And and I was again. This is where the movie's sympathies, to me, were becoming much more complex and much more interesting because I'm like, okay, it is 1920. Who are we supposed to be sympathizing with here? Should we see this good young doctor and be like, of course, sculpting is, you know... (laughs) It's frivolous. It's frivolous. It's meaningless. And look at who you're cavorting with. You know, who hangs out with artists anyway? You, this can only lead to trouble. And then we see it does lead to trouble. But I was like, he's just such a fucking prick. Oh, yeah. You know, he just stops all over her, her dream and what she wants to do. And here is Blizzard, you know, not only like collaborating with her and participating, but, but encouraging it and seeing her. Her talent and recognizing her
0: talent. Doesn't she say something like, "I just want to do one good thing," yeah. and I think sculpting Satan will be that one good thing. Yeah. And if I fail, then so be it. Then I'll go live my normie life with you, boring
2: fiance. Yeah. Doctor Pretty Boy is just like, well, you don't, you don't need to do one good
1: thing. You can just marry me and have some kids or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. a break. He's, yeah, he's such, yeah, he's such a good foil in that he's just the worst, you know? And, like, yeah, like, there's no way. And then he also uh, works for the, the shitty doctor. Yeah. He's, like, his partner, like, his, you know, protege. Yeah.
2: And and uh, I think even Blizzard says, like, he's got some very nice legs.
1: Oh, yeah. He, <laughs> yeah. He's almost licking his lips at the sight of those that, stunning legs. Yeah, that becomes part of the plan you know, cause he's like, Oh great. You know, I'll just take his legs and take Barbara, yeah. you know, we'll call it a day.
2: Yeah. Here's the protege of the man who destroyed my life. Like
1: <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to cut him down to size, you know? Yeah. Cause ultimately the doctor finds out about all this. And, uh, another comical inner title that I laughed at was, uh, may I talk with Mr. Blizzard alone when the the doctor comes in? Because he's like shitting bricks. He's so scared of Blizzard knowing what he did. Can I speak to Mr. Blizzard? Just Mr. Blizzard. I was cracking up.
2: Dude, there's so many good names, and we've named quite a few of them, you know? And even just, you know, the, the, the guy that I guess is... Is sort of his his connection to all the disgruntled foreign laborers. He's just O'Hagan,
1: oh, yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> the big mustache, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, O'Hagan the Red, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as as happens so many times with the artist subject relationship, right. Um, Blizzard does start to have some feelings for Barbara. Yes, he does. And in in an impulsive moment, he does act on them. And, you know, she she was pretty tactful up until this point um, in terms of, you know, having someone without legs in her studio who identifies himself as Satan-like. You know, she was pretty chill, all things considered. But the moment that he shows certain signs of affection and longing for her, she's so terrified that she... Breaks out in like hysterical laughter, and that's a striking image. Is when Lon Chaney Blizzard really freaks out because he lunges after her and and falls. He doesn't have his crutches, so he falls from the pedestal he was sitting at, um, uh, the of which fall he was model. The father <laughs>
1: yeah, no. Oh. Saved after the fall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true, but yeah, I mean, you see him. Take a pretty serious tumble there.
1: I've just got in my notes for that part, uh, in bold. He's going nuts, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Dude, yeah. I see, it. I'm right here, just his goblin mode, like he's just going, He's goes crazy. And again, I think that's for me the again, the hallmark of, of this particular type of villain. I, I asked you to bring it's, it's a villain that that sort of pulls us to their level, you know, in his case. On a certain level, you could say it's like physically, but but it's like we start getting into his rhythm. And and as I'm watching the movie, as this thing starts to develop, I'm like, let's get to it, let's do it, let's go. Like we got it, we got all the shit to do. Let's get the doctor, you know. Let's get these guys. Let's get O'Hagan. Let's get the get the hats. Get start passing out the hats. Let's go, you know. You 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 start buying into their menace. They convince you to see the world. In their way, you know that that makes them sympathetic, empathetic, uh, relatable, and and ultimately someone that that is really driving the story.
0: I mean, thankfully, they do get to it, as you said. As we're sitting here watching, like let you know, let's let's see it all come together here because you're so with it with him, and I mean, so eventually through a series of schemes, he does get. Um he basically invites everyone over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he like tricks everyone to just like coming to his place. Yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> and he, yeah, I mean, like without getting into the details, he essentially tells the doctor, like what you're going to do is, is you're going to give me uh, your daughter's, um, her fiance, you're going to give me his legs, yeah. right? Like I've got a whole system set up down here. If you want your daughter to live, you're going to give me her fiance's legs. And, you know, a man who started his career with some medical malpractice you know continues his career with some medical malpractice (laughs) and he doesn't fucking do (laughs) what blizzard has requested and to me this was the tragic turning point in the film because it turns out he didn't get some new legs but a contusion at the back of his skull which is very briefly mentioned in the opening scene is now addressed and focused on by the doctor yeah. um, after some years of reflection, realizing, Oh, maybe I shouldn't have cut off the legs. Maybe I should have focused on that contusion that I yeah. was uh, aware of. I love it. Yeah. So he's like, he's like, you know, I, I, I pointed out this contusion uh, before, you know, <laughs> It's like <what> the <laughs> before fuck? when we let him go. Yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah. Um, but so that, yeah, blizzard wakes up a changed man it turns out that that contusion was messing with his head and that he wasn't wholly responsible for his evil acts um, and now he can use all of this charisma and vigor and energy towards good to just make hats to ju- yeah to ju- to just make hats and sell them at market value <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was like, oh, this is tragic, my heart, you know, like seeing Lon Chaney now do a normal face, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, the film, he becomes so much less expressive. He's like, okay, well, I'll be be a source of good here. I'm going to turn
1: my life around, you know? I thought at that moment, Ryan, I I agreed with you in my head. I was like, no, this is the fucking penalty, but it is not what the characters in the film refer to as the titular penalty. That's what yeah. happens a few minutes later. Yes. So I was like, yeah, Ryan, I agree with you. The minute the doctor didn't fucking do what he said. That was the penalty. That was the in penalty, penalty. you know, there he was paying the penalty for uh, his evil, his evil deeds, yeah. you know. Yeah, he got powered down. Yeah they yeah. leveled them down. Yeah.
2: <laughs> this is where like the politics then they all just start to they, they just start to fizzle out, you know, and the and the 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 Hollywood, you know, American, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Like the 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 sort of like normative aspect of it all comes back into play where where it's it's sort of implied that anyone that would want to, you know, organize some sort of like disgruntled worker uprising is a madman. Right. Like it's 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 mental illness that would push you to, to look at the world in this way. But then I do love
0: the way that his his minions interpret that. Um, yes. And sort of how I interpret that as a viewer, right? Because I'm sort of like I kind of like these minions, and uh, to you know to certain degrees. But that's <laughs> when they, <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: that's when they say now that he has religion, he'll raise hell. And here we go. We've got these different understandings of what constitutes hell mm-hmm. in these worlds and these. Competing systems that have their own definitions of hell. Now that he's good and a part of the dominant system, his yeah. minions acknowledge, well, he, he's lost. He is now going to raise hell. He's a real Satan in our eyes. Yeah. So he's, gonna, he's, he's be coming snitch. after
1: them. Yeah. He'll be, you know, he'll be kicking down doors with Hoover, you know, in the, the next 10 minutes. Mm-hmm.
0: So they kill him. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Frisco Pete, the tweaker, is just, like, losing his fucking mind because, like, he's clearly on drugs and paranoid. And also, as you pointed out, kind of the most perceptive guy in the room at the end of the day, being like, oh, now we're all fucked. Yeah, what are we going to do with all these hats? Oh, my God, (laughs) dude, we have all those rifles? I mean, the whole operation is now running at a loss, like, without this guy. Um, What are we
0: going to do with these hats? Yeah. Yeah, so,
1: you know, Pete... He blasts him, and uh, that's, you know, when they're like, no, this is the penalty for my turn to evil, you know, but, like, Uh, that that already happened, dude. The movie already ended, you know, and it ended tragically. Yeah. See, I
2: thought I, I was the whole movie. I was like, I was like, the penalty is being born in San Francisco. Like, this is the penalty that you pay. You know that you just you live in this shitty fucking place. And and I guess again, like I said, some things change and some things
1: uh, stay the same. Yeah, and look, you know, they say uh, you know an evil mask of a great soul. Barbara refers to her uh, sculpture. You know. Yes. Yeah. And she gives up her sculpting and <laughs> gets yeah, married, Harry's right. Yeah, Dr. Wilmot Helen. You know? Yeah, it's a tragic. It's totally movie. depressing. Yeah. yeah.
2: That's when you really know, like, you know, do you have a, a very good bad boy? You know, do you have one of these villains that that when they leave us, uh, we do feel a sense of loss. You know, that that it isn't like the kind of movie where and we've seen plenty of those that when the villain finally gets his the audience cheers, you know, everyone's like, absolutely got that fucker, you know, he got exactly what was coming to him. That when a when a villain meets their end, we 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 we
1: mourn that ending a bit, you know, definitely the case here uh, and, and maybe a little bit in our other film as well. I read in uh, an interview with George Armitage that Nick Pinkerton did, uh, Armitage said about Junior, Junior is an American bad man of the sort that's as old as the Jamestown colony, but he's infected with an entirely contemporary spirit. So just thinking, you know, we've got a classic American bad man here, the con man, the grifter, the petty thief, the impulsive the crime spree sort of guy, you know? <laughs> yeah, the man who just
0: break a finger and kill you uh, because of that at a moment's notice, you know? I thought it was going to be revealed at some point that he was, like, skillfully severing, like, specific arteries or something. Oh, like he knew what he was way. doing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's, it's revealed that, no, that the Krishna man did truly just die of shock at having his finger broken.
2: And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the the Krishna played by one of the producers, Edward Saxon.
1: Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah.
2: The, the oh, Krishna is played by one of the executive producers of the movie, or one of the producers, Edward Saxon. This film has an extremely
0: mocking attitude towards uh, the Krishnas.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, that's, a doubt. and that's all in the novel for sure. I don't know what Williford was up to in Florida, but that's
2: what's going to unfold through the rest of the movie. Is that? in his like crime spree and in the things that he's doing like he's mostly doing it to people that we as an audience are meant to kind of go like yeah, he kind of deserved it or whatever, you know, like Hare Krishnas are annoying, you know, and like the cops (laughs) even say, you know, they've been warned about hassling people. (laughs) They're kind of blaming the cops themselves, like are blaming the Krishna for it, you know, and then it's like, well, he just broke his finger and the guy fucking died. Like, yeah,
1: they're like, is that even a homicide? Like, they're really not even sure, like what that means. And they're just
2: laughing like they think it's
0: ridiculous. They're like openly joking about it as a fellow Krishna is on the ground crying over the corpse <laughs> yeah. of his fallen comrade.
1: And the guy too, when he's like bothering Junior on the, uh, the escalator, he's like
2: Hi there, going home? I'd like to tell you about a book. It's a classic of the Vedic literature.
1: The knowledge of God. Have you seen the movie Gandhi? My name's Ravindra. What's
2: your name? Trouble. Ah!
1: And I do want to point out, you know, one of the biggest departure points from the novel to film, and this would also maybe explain the presence of the Krishnas. I mean, maybe not, Ryan, but like uh, in the novel, plot twist, uh, the Hare Krishna is Susan's brother. Oh. And that's a whole thing in the novel that you get access to through Susie and her being like my brother you know like all this stuff and you learn about him and all that but you know George Armitage is a uh, 100 minute movie all action kind of guy and so he's you know he said he was like cut that you know uh, that's out immediately of the script. Yeah, like, it's called, you know, f- it's like something explaining. you can do in a novel. Like, because it's also like a ridiculous coincidence. Like, it's a freak death. Like, Williford's really pushing it with like the plausibility of the scenario, but he's so yeah. skillful that he does it. And George Armitage was like, okay, just get rid of all that, you know? So, yeah. He's just a random guy. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think that's a pretty intelligent subtraction, as we would say, you know, with our, our short story conversation. It's because really? that would just, yeah, that would just complicate things needlessly. This yeah. movie's nice and clean. Yes.
2: Yeah. And even, like, from from the Krishna on, like, most of the people that Junior, like, fucks with or robs or, you know, whatever are, are criminals. And even, like, as he, you know, starts seducing Susie, you know, eventually, uh, you know, at first he doesn't let her know about his past. But at a certain point he does open up to her and he says, look. I robbed people who robbed people uh, that that he, you know, she's like, you're like robbing uh, then, huh? And he's like, yeah, sure. Except I didn't give the money to the poor or whatever. But, you know, he is in terms of his targets, you know, he's chosen for the most part other criminals. And, and that's something that we'll see in this film as well but even beyond that generally he's going for like rich people and and stealing things that for them is probably a drop in the bucket you know some rich lady's purse or you know a tv that somebody else had already stolen from a from a like a you know an electronics store or, or something or just like,
1: like a that. totally basic coin collection that yeah. isn't worth very much exactly yeah.
2: you know just collecting dust in some guy's apartment you know? <laughs> But, but yeah, you know, in, in in talking about other like charismatic villains, you know, it reminded me of, of it, what, what do they say about Hannibal Lecter? And I, I forget which movie it is, but that it's like, well, he only kills rude people or something. And the implication <laughs> right. being that like everybody that he goes after is in some way like a disgusting human being that deserves to be eaten, you know, mm-hmm. if you really think about it. You know, I so
0: I really I like this film quite a lot. Um, and one of the things I, because I I haven't seen it before. And, yeah, tell me um, everything. You hadn't
2: seen this before?
0: <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't oh seen this before. Oh my goodness! And I was trying to track down a copy of the book because I, I was like I could fit this in. I could get this thing done before the the film. I like Williford. I've all my my exposure to him has been entirely through through Marsh. You know, just lending me. Williford books um, and I know my dad has a copy of Miami Blues like in a crusty you know cardboard box in like a closet somewhere all those old mass market paperbacks I've, I've seen it and I regretfully didn't take it you know to add to my own collection but no I mean amongst all of the things it, there's so much to love about this film I mean I love the way it looks I love the way s- space is arranged in the film just it it's both an extremely vibrant and colorful film full of just like beautiful pastels but it's also not ever getting lost in the glitz and glamour quote unquote of miami it's very grounded and feels very real again despite the fact that it's so stylized there's so many things like conflicting throughout the film formally that make it so entrancing I think and but I think ultimately the thing that I was so drawn towards while watching it wasn't even the villain in the situation. it was uh-huh. Jennifer Jason Lee um, oh God yeah. I just she is always so good. I she's one of my favorite actresses and it's so awesome seeing like a young. Incredibly spirited performance from her. She is so wonderful in this movie.
1: You could see the movie not working uh, with a lot of other actresses. Yes. Because it's a tough role, because she's a a very naive character. Mm -hmm. And it's a very tough sell not to make her a caricature or not to make her like an unlikable idiot, you know? And she's so skillful. And I do want to point out that J. Rowe, from Alabama, said that this performance is one of the most convincing southern accents he's seen on film.
2: How old are you, anyway? Nineteen.
0: And my name is Pepper.
1: You got a driver's
2: license on you, Pepper? What's wrong with Susan Wagner? <laughs> you know, Susie, this license here says you're 23 years old.
0: I know what it says.
2: You can call me Junior. But you know, something that pissed me off. Speaking of critics, was was uh, reading. Uh, I couldn't help it. You know, like I came across uh, as I was like just looking at what people thought of the movie, like Ebert. And I, I, Uh-oh. I often like to go to Ebert just from the standpoint of being like. <laughs> I mean, how, did that he, perspective yeah did he get it wrong like what and like man he got this one so wrong because he he specifically was saying that like uh the tone they like the the tone of this movie is all wrong and and in thinking of jennifer jason lee to me it's all about the right tone like like you said like striking the right tone and this movie like nails it because you know it's not too serious nor is it too ridiculous like in your intro you said like it's It's, it's both, you know, at times like absurdly comic and, and incredibly moving and, and touching. And her character is, and, and really like her, her relationship with Junior, but because of her, like it becomes so, you know, so affecting where she goes and and what happens to her, like Poor fucking Susie yeah. throughout this whole goddamn thing, you know, I mean, and and yeah, that she's able to really like walk that line between being somebody like we laugh at because of her naivete, as you would say, and and also because of like her again, like the fact that uh, she she isn't playing it like she's a dumbo, like she sees through his facade and whether or not she's willing to admit it at first, like she sees through it. And she even says, you know, again, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but like, no, like I saw this, but I was, I was hoping, like I was hoping that he yeah. would be better than
1: this. Like could she's be better like than this Good person, you know? Yeah. And she, she, yeah. she
2: sees the good in other people. Yes.
1: You know,
0: I think she's the most emotionally intelligent character in the film. Right. I mean, there, there's so much depth of feeling in her performance and, You look at the way she responds to people and the way she feels about things, and then you look at Fred Ward's character, and you wonder just like, what the hell is going on in that guy's head? Okay,
1: yeah, we gotta talk about this, too, because I was thinking when we were talking about the penalty as you know, breaking up the intense action of this villain with, like, some relief. Like, just some federal agents sitting around being like, Blizzard is out of control, you know? Because we need some time away from all the crime and criminality, right? So as much as we are focusing on, you know, the goings-on of Junior as he's running around robbing people with a police badge, we then have all of that thrown into relief, as it were, uh, with, yes, Ryan, Hoke Mosley, played by Fred Ward. And I want to point out that the original conception of this film was... Because uh, this was a Fred Ward-initiated project. Yeah, I read that. And he was going to play Junior, and Gene Hackman was going to play Hoke Mosley. And ultimately they saw Baldwin, and they said, all right, He's junior. you know, and yeah, well, Fred was like, <laughs> I'll play ho, you know, like, as a producer, as the guy who initiated this thing, he was like, all right, we, we figured this out. Gene would have been great, but uh oh well and they actually put there's posters of gene hackman movies throughout the film as an homage to his involvement in the project
2: (laughs) i noticed the posters that's funny pointing all that out that's amazing
0: do you know not to put you on the spot do you know how old the character is supposed to be in the
1: book he's he's like young in the novel he's like in his he's like in his 20s you know yeah so Fred Ward would have felt odd I think in that but role. also yeah. Fred
2: Ward wasn't super old when he was playing this and and to play Hulk they have to make him look like old and broken down because Fred Ward you know this is like not too far removed from from you know Remo Williams and like yeah. the guys in like great mm. shape I mean he was doing his own stunt work he was doing martial mm. arts like he's a very like trim and cut dude and, and I mean he's certainly probably older than Alec baldwin but you know they they got to put the gray in his hair they got to give him this weird fat pudgy you know potbelly uh, prosthetic that he's wearing (laughs) to make him look like some you know some broken down old cop with with false teeth you know so so honestly like i could i when you know reading about that like i could have seen it both ways but i think it is like such a brilliant decision on their part because fred ward like as Hulk Mosley. Oh my God! It's again. You talk about the right tone and and knowing exactly what to get out of the role and what you need to put into it, and and he does fucking nail it. You know, and I really I don't know if you guys picked up on it this time. You know, Ryan, it was your first viewing, so so, uh, but again, we are all fans here of of another great slovenly detective, and this time around, I really really picked up on like Columbo vibes. Especially sure. in his first encounter with Herman Gottlieb uh, Jr., you know when he tracks yeah. down in his investigation, you know, Hulk's investigation of the the the, the dead Art Krishna, when he finds out, you know, that okay, there was some guy with a suede sport coat that people saw, and and you know, through his investigation, connects Alec Baldwin's character to Susie, and he goes to her house and finds him there. That when he walks in the apartment and Junior's there and Junior's, you know, jumpy and nervous because, yeah, he's, a, he's an ex-con that's committing crimes and why wouldn't he be jumpy and nervous when the doorbell rings? But that first look when Fred Ward turns and he looks at Alec Baldwin and he just goes,
1: Bet you're Herman Gottlieb.
2: How much? Sergeant Hulk Mosley. Homicide. Herman Gottlieb. <laughs> like to ask you a few questions, routine. Boy, you got a grip there, Herman. Been working out? Can I get you a cold one there, Sarge? Uh, why not? And in that look, I was just like, it's fucking Columbo. Like where he's just immediately like, that's him, that's yep. the guy, he did it. Yep. And he's convinced, you know, the investigation's over. Like he's found the guy he's looking for. And man, that fucking dinner scene between the three of them is a masterclass in like in in just like everything that is like great in I think uh, actors who who know what they're supposed to be doing and you know how to deliver their lines in such a way that they're you know they're charged. I mean I, I'm I'm sort of like rambling just simply because sometimes it's hard to talk about something that is just so fucking perfect. But that dinner scene is incredible.
0: No, I agree and I think it does feel like a Columbo scene. It's again in Columbo's process of how do you catch him sometimes that involves just openly fucking with them by putting on an act. Yeah. And by sitting down and having dinner and when he's talking about how much he loves the pork chop that she cooked up you know it's all coded very much with how he you know really knows that he's in the den of the man he's looking yeah. for and alec baldwin's character even acknowledges that i mean part of it is just because of his crazy impulses but there's a great shot where fred ward leans over to see so he could write down the pork chop recipe you know smooth talking jennifer jason lee and in the background Alec Baldwin pulls out a gun, like a giant gun that he had stored in the freezer and is just jokingly pretending to shoot Fred Ward. Mm -hmm. And even then, I think his character realizes like, ah, yeah, this guy knows it's me. Yeah. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. and this is this this here's the cat and mouse game. Like we're just going to be fucking around with each other for the rest of
2: the movie. You can't necessarily prove it, even though I know that you know that I'm the guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, so much you know. of that, you know, yeah, it's that Columbo exchange of of like subtext more than anything in their conversation. Yes. And again, like thinking of Columbo, like uh, that's, it's about being disarming, right? And part of his like slovenly look, his disheveled appearance is to make him look like some sort of like bumbling oaf. And I felt this time around very much that like that's, the strength of Hoke Mosley, you know, and I, I haven't read the book, so I don't know how much of that's there, but like, we also see through the film that most of the other cops think Hoke is, is an idiot yes. and a joke, you know, what do they, they call him the strange ranger. There's like the cartoon of him yeah. on the, the wall and yeah the false teeth and him like spitting out his teeth and talking to people with his nasty (laughs) gums you know it's so it's so that they they are like completely uh off balance by this guy
1: yeah in the books it's it's you know this is a very faithful rendering of hoke i mean in the books he is a a good homicide detective you know buried beneath layers of Complaining about alimony and his divorce. (laughs) and his Yeah, and and very, you know, uh, specifically, like, a a good chunk of the novels are about how uh, he lives in Miami Beach because it's cheaper. But then they made a rule that cops had to live in Miami, and it's, like, ruining his life. (laughs) You know, that's, like, a major plot over several books. Like, that's the kind of guy Hoke is. He lives in this, like, transient hotel with a bunch of old people on Miami Beach beach with like a deaf uh doorman who mans the counter too and never answers the phone and it's this whole situation you know and he just lives in this like one room pigsty nasty space and it's again you know it's this whole film too is playing on the doppelganger aspect with you know junior playing cop and then it's here's the real cop this guy has no life uh, he's cynical. Everything sucks. He's got all these problems, and that's that's this guy. That's the real cop. And then we have Junior playing what he thinks cops do, which also, again, you know, is kind of what <laughs> cops, cops do as well. You know, so there is layers to it uh, in that way. And I love when like. Hoke starts reading, like, news items or hearing reports from, uh, you know, other cops, he's like, God damn, he's out there solving my cases because Junior accidentally nabs the uh, dumbbell killers uh, (laughs) that Hoke is sort of looking for when the film opens, you know? This sort of, like, gym-related murder that's alluded to is accidentally solved because Baldwin's just, like, robbing a drug
2: deal. Right, yeah. He's he's like, I've been on that thing for 15 months! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the other cop is even like, well, maybe we should just leave him out there yeah. right? so he can solve a few more of your cases.
0: There was one touch I really loved in his like dingy hotel room that relates directly, I think, Andy, to what you're talking about in terms of him being a Columbo-type figure. Um, and that's after that crazy dinner scene and we transition into that hotel room, Fred Ward is watching on TV like a fishing show. And you hear the man narrating saying, you know, it's it's a process of catch and release, right? And it's just like a winking moment of of cueing us, like, yes, he knows uh, who it is. Like, he got him. Uh, And that's what Columbo does. It's always a process of catch and release until you for sure, like, you can really grab him, you know? Yeah, the
1: difference being that in Columbo, none of the villains ever come to his home and knock him out and steal his teeth, you know? (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah.
2: When he does that, you know, he grabs yeah. his wallet and he you know he takes all the cash out and then he looks at like this sort of old pathetic guy and he's just like I mean he's not really that bad. So he takes a hundred bucks out and throws it back down on the table for him, knowing like, yeah, Yo, when you get up, you're gonna need a little cash to like sort yourself out, you know? <laughs> like he does that. And then, you know, as he's going around as the as the cop, uh, he does that, you know, Alec Baldwin like goes and and rousts that that like pimp at the hotel who he finds out is paying off some vice cop so he can run girls, you know, some other corrupt cop. And he's like, I'm Hulk Mosley. And from now on, you're going to split this money and bring $250 to my hotel, to the Primrose Hotel, and leave it with the desk. So he, like, sets up Hulk, To so get that,
1: bribes. So that he can
2: just get bribes, you know? Like, what the fuck is he doing? Like, you, you love that shit. You yeah,
1: know? there are those little, yeah, little touches throughout the film, you know, outside of the Susie relationship, where there is some kind of human connection there, however strained it is. But yeah, even in the Hulk stuff, right, there are all those little grace notes and little things that he does that...
2: Again, yeah. in like a Colombo way, because it's like, you get the impression too that Fred Ward, you know, Hulk, kind of likes Junior. Like, he's like, yeah, you're a bad guy and you're a criminal. This is what we do, you know? Catch and release, cops and robbers. We do this. But as the film develops, you see that grudging... Uh, affection that builds between him and, and Alec Baldwin. And
0: I mean, I don't want to linger on the scene too long, but I'm still like, that dinner scene with the pork chop, I just like, can't imagine any world where I would, if a cop came over to ask questions, invite him to stay and share an entire meal with me.
1: Well, I think to Ryan, the joke is that Hoke is really cheap. And that he'll happily just take a free meal.
0: Oh, sure. Like, it was an empty (laughs) gesture that they're like, oh, why don't you have a meal? And he was like, absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) like, like, he's not
1: supposed to say yes. You know, he's just like, I'm I'm just a cop. But again, he's already on to... Herman, a.k.a. Junior, you know, so, like, he's willing to take that gamble and get the free meal. Yeah, and know? drink, like, all their beer. Yeah, he chugs all their beer. He goes to town because he is just, like, this pathetic loser, yeah. you know, so there's, like, that element to it. <laughs> yeah.
2: He, like, keeps asking, too, when they're, like, no more beer, and he's, like, well, beer's gone, I'm gone. He keeps asking, like, you sure you don't got one more beer rattling around in there, you know?
1: And that also initiates the uh, movie-long uh, discussion of recipes that occur uh between Jennifer Jason Lee and Fred Ward, which is a really nice touch talking about all this weird, you know, Florida stuff or regional stuff. Yeah, you know? because
2: it's also again like his again, like his sensitivity and, and his his intelligence that like and, and emotional intelligence. I mean he he knows that she is going to be the the thing that turns it for him. And he's got to stay yeah. talking to her. He can't just be like, turn this guy in. He's just got to keep communicating with her so the recipe thing is his way of just being like hey i gotta talk to you again about something again like in a very colombo way of just being like i mean yeah yeah, we'll talk about the case but i really want to ask you about the vinegar pie
1: yeah the chestnut uh whatever the fuck she's talking about yeah
2: it's a way to like you know justify him constantly like bumping into her and
1: running into her because she is quite the homemaker, you know, despite being this busy college student and sometimes uh, hooker, you know. That recipe,
0: the recipe swapping, you know, without getting too far ahead, does in that that uh, my favorite scene in the film involves that recipe swapping, and it speaks to Jennifer Jason Leigh's performance, and that is a, a moment when you know he does Mosley encounters her in a grocery store. And he sort of key, you know, he's like gives her some signals, uh, you know, mentioning like, oh, is your boyfriend still around? And at this point uh, she's sort of covering for him and she's like, oh, no, he, he's gone. And he's like, oh, that's good because then he, you know, eventually reveals to her who he is, who he's looking for. And then Jennifer Jason Lee's response is to recite a recipe. But when she does, her voice is quavering. She's Yeah,
1: she's like breaking
0: down. That was what spoke, I think, to just what I was mentioning, the emotional depth of her character. The way she recites that monologue and recites that recipe, it feels so real in a film that is so comic and eccentric at times. It like keeps grounding it with someone who feels of this world, feels very real. Uh, you were made of vinegar pie?
2: Oh, vinegar pie. My mother used to make it. I can still taste it.
0: Oh, <laughs> seedless raisins for a start. Chop them up real fine. And, and you beat the egg yolks
2: and the butter until they're creamy. Wait a second. And you beat the egg whites until they're stiff. And then you fold them in. And you take one cup of sugar. And um, here's the tricky part, OK? This is the key. You
0: use 5% vinegar, no stronger. And just three teaspoons. That's all.
2: Just three little teaspoons.
1: And the Piggly Wiggly of 1989 is looking out of this world, dude. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I could just, again, gush all day about, about the locations. But, you know, if you haven't seen this film and you're listening, like, everyone's driving around in convertibles. There's neon lights everywhere, even inside the convenience store. Like... I'm not sure if they put that shit there or Miami was really just that, you know, <laughs> crazy looking. Uh, and there's an element of that. You yeah. Know?
2: And yet, you know, it's something you've already kind of pointed out or, or brought up. I, I think you both have is that, you know, this is also a, a, a different look at Miami as well because there is the, the, the colorful quality and the neon and stuff. But it's also like at times like, run down and we're in, in the, the seedier areas. And it, it also made me think that this film was coming out while Miami Vice was still on TV and was, was so, yeah. you know, such a, uh, you know, a, a, an iconic uh, bit of media to sort of put Miami on the map, a glamorous Miami. And it seems very much a, a conscientious decision to say like, you know, Miami ain't just, you know, cigarette boats and and Ferraris. This is
1: a local take on Miami, you know, like Williford lived there for years, you know, with his wife who like edited the new, the local newspaper, you know, and he taught literature and just was like thinking about neighborhoods in in Miami, you know, that aren't, the ones on Miami. Yeah. I feel
0: like this representational strategy of Miami would reach its apex, or I guess you could say its nadir, in um, another film we talked about on the podcast, Shadas. Uh, another <laughs> further extreme <laughs> look at Miami, a
2: deglamorization of That's the space. Right. Yeah. And you know what? Let's be honest. Uh, what is Junior but a Shada? Yeah. If you will recall, <laughs> a Shada is a guy who you know, rips off other drug dealers.
1: That's you know? right. And Junior has a pretty wide canvas. You know, we should talk about some of the fun stuff in the movie. You know, like any good crime film, we uh, we enjoy the crimes. And I think in this film, we enjoy them on a, a, a character level as well as, like, a visual level. And there's all these little, like, montages, often, you know, in these kind of, like, tracking shots or like long take like handheld following Alec Baldwin as he's running all over uh, the streets of Miami uh.
0: Hey!
2: What are you doing? Open! Open the goddamn door
1: Now! Do it! Ah, ah, stop! Bro, I'll shoot! Ah.
2: You just shot me! You fired a warning shot and it
1: hit you You're no cop! They're really just like electric, you know? They're really yeah. fast. They're really quick. They're really good. They're well shot. I mean, it's like, again, you know, it speaks to Armitage's background as a guy in low budget movies from back in the day, you know? Like Demi, he came up through the Corman. So he can slap together an on location like robbery sequence in two shots, three shots, maybe, but. Maybe one shot, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's like these little self-contained units that emerge these sort of like. Baldwin crimes, you know, sketches. Like <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're they're really colorful and it's not just like drug dealers and, and stuff. He like busts in on a numbers racket at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh, yeah. he's he's stopping anything he sees or perceives as a crime, which is a lot of shit, obviously, in a in a you know, unrealistic comic way, as like everywhere he turns someone's being robbed in Miami. But again, I think that's also part of the vision at play here. Yeah. When he's having
2: lunch and some guy just suddenly like holds up the, the, the (laughs) diner or wherever he's at, you know, we have some of that prior to him getting the badge. And then like when he gets the badge, it does go to the next level. Like he, something that I really like appreciated this time around was like how he how chameleon-like his character is, yeah. how he's constantly changing his persona. He's always like performing a certain role that he thinks he's supposed to, whether it's like, I'm, I'm wealthy businessman in my Cosby sweater and glasses now, yeah. or I'm cop. So I'm going to wear like a bad blazer and like slick my hair to the side. You know, I'm going to look like a dork cop with white socks and black shoes. But, but like he revels in it when he become quote, when he becomes a cop, he, he kind of takes pride in what he's doing like oh yeah he foils certain crimes and you see a sense of like i did a good thing there but now i should also be rewarded for it yeah. <laughs> right? i mean still... i think
1: as the film develops he almost believes he is a police officer sure. like i think his reality at, at a certain point is is quite blurred in in how he perceives what he's doing, you know. Yes, like he really does define himself as
2: that, you know. There's the the moment when he's you know foiling a, a, a like a convenience store robbery, and like he gets injured, you know. The the guy you know crashes his truck through the thing, and he's like crushed. And like the first thing he says when the guy's going to help him, he's like, "Get this thing off me! I'm a cop!" Like that's how he defines himself. <laughs>
0: right yeah that moment's crazy too because again so often when he's revealing um that he's a quote unquote cop it's because he feels the power of the badge and of the gun and in that scene when that convenience store is being robbed he thinks he can accomplish all of it simply with a jar of spaghetti sauce you know he shows his badge says i'm a cop and then he has just sauce in his hand that he plans on throwing at him and he thinks great
1: improviser.
0: Yeah, great improviser and he thinks simply by saying, "Hey, head out, you know, I I won't call it in. I'm going to let you go with a warning, you know, yeah. that he can he can f- fulfill this." And I guess it's his strategy so often is obviously based on authority with a badge and a gun. And at this point, it's probably taking over his identity so much that he even thinks he can just get away with it with his charisma and words. Mm-hmm.
2: But even in that scene, I read it, especially this time around, like he's trying to stop this guy, not because he necessarily like disagrees with crime, but I almost read it as him like looking at this guy and be like, man, you don't want to go down this path. Like he seems very intent on just like the, to the guy that's holding it up to be like, like, come on, man, like, don't, don't do this. Like I'm trapped in this now. This is who I am. But You know, it's maybe not too late for you because he doesn't throw the jar at the guy, you know, that's holding up the convenience store. He ends up throwing the jar at the guy behind the counter who pulls a gun and is going to shoot the criminal. Like he stops him like don't shoot that guy like he's just another human being and like sees perhaps himself like a younger version of like. Maybe that's how it all started for me. You know, I just robbed a fucking convenience store and now I don't know how to stop. This is the only life I can live.
1: I mean, one moment that really struck me this time that sort of reinforces him as, you know, maybe a romantic to a certain extent, you know, uh, after he, you know, steals all of Hope's shit, Susie's waiting outside for him at the car. And before he gets in the car, he pauses. And he looks out at the beach, and it's a sunset silhouetted shot of a family with a dog playing frisbee. And it just lingers on his longing for that, you know? And so, again, like, all that comes back, you know, especially in, you know, how the film proceeds with the two of them, which is, like, first they're in a hotel, then they're at Susie's apartment, then they rent a house in Coral Gables and sort of play marriage, you know? Yeah. And and the moment you're talking about with the spaghetti sauce is like in his normie phase, you know? He's kind of settled into this life. Yeah, he's still like robbing and stuff, but like you know, he's he's got his girl. He's got his house. He's installed security bars around uh, uh, the house. Yeah, it's a dangerous city. You know? <laughs> and he's he's living the dream. And so when he goes to the convenience store, you know, like he's having normy thoughts, yeah. you know, because of his relationship. With Susie, mm-hmm. yeah, like
2: what he's like the other thing he says after being smashed in that that convenience store holdup is like, as he's like bleeding and his like eyebrows like dangling off of his face, he's like. Where do you keep the whipping cream? Like he was just on an errand. <laughs> he was doing like, an errand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't out robbing. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and you're <clears throat> right because that's again the, the the real emotional heart is like in these moments with him and Susie where they're talking about their dreams, you know, and their dreams in life of 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 yeah. In her case, just simply like just being middle class, like her dream is to own a burger world franchise or something like that, you know? And like for him from, from, from the get go, once he, he steals some money, uh, in, in the beginning of the film, when he's begun his crime spree in, in Miami, I love that scene too. Cause that's just him holding a bunch of cash and, and the way Alec Baldwin says, we've got a million dollars. Like when he keeps just like saying that, um, his fantasy then is him, just buying stuff. It's it's not like him like stealing more shit. He's just like running through these scenarios of of buying a Porsche or buying a speedboat like I can I can participate in this world too. I can buy things, I can have stuff. It's like they just want to exist, and they want to exist comfortably. Again, in the the hell of, of, you know, post-Reagan America, in a scene where he robs some drug dealers, there's graffiti behind them. The graffiti says, please, God, let me get mine this time, or let me get what I want this time. And again, I was thinking of, like, his mantra and this idea of, like, the fallen angel, and please, God, like, just let me have something. Let me
1: let me go buy what I want. Let me go exist in this world. Reminds me of uh, previous stars of The Gauntlet, the Dion Brothers, who just wanted a <laughs> little piece of the pie yeah. for themselves. Just wanted to open a seafood restaurant in
2: Washington, D.C. <laughs> We've
1: seen it before, folks, and we're seeing it again.
0: And, you know, thinking about pieces of pie, <laughs> there is a scene in this film that I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, I only watched the movie last night, but I'm still thinking about this scene. And that's when Jennifer Jason Lee, Susan starts suspecting, right, that he's deceiving her, that he's not being completely truthful and that he, he may actually be lying when she thinks that that's something he would never even stoop to. So her strategy, at least how I read the scene, her strategy of that was to making uh, just a grotesque pie with an absurd amount of vinegar in it. Yeah, vinegar pie. We see her. Yeah, she's she's doing what was presumably maybe 3 teaspoons of of vinegar and the third teaspoon is almost half the jug. So after dinner, she she brings him this pie and he eats it, but he doesn't you know he clearly reacts with some discomfort oh, uh, it's it's an assault on his mouth for sure but he doesn't complain about it she says how's the pie and he's like it's good it's good <laughs> you know and and it's interesting i, I don't know I, to me that moment you know it, it's very tragic for her because she's yes. like well he's lying right but i also think and maybe that's just because there's quite a bit of depth in a lot of these scenes I didn't read his response to the pie as all that deceptive. I also think that it was, to me, there was some evidence of love there where he's not going to mock her for something she made for him. Mm -hmm. That's right. That he doesn't see anything productive in being cruel and mentioning that the pie is disgusting yeah you know not to bury and I think lead, that that's in a the unique... end
1: you know Susie does cite uh, to Hoke you know he he had you know there's a very explicit like he had good qualities moment yeah. and she says uh, specifically, he always ate everything I ever cooked for him and he never hit me. There were a lot of good things about Junior, and that's how she wraps it up. And it's like she's, you know, uh, from the swamp, you know, this this poor girl from the swamp, you know, trying to make her way in Miami. And her bar is, yes, like so low, you know, but he didn't. You know, he ate everything she cooked, you know, and that's a good quality in a person, you know. So there's there's multiple meanings to that, because like you said, Ryan, for for her, that moment is like proof that he is a sociopathic liar because she's looking for a moment of truth by giving him this torture vinegar pie you know (laughs) yeah
2: but again like part of what makes this film ultimately like a tragedy on a certain level because it it, again it's about a guy that yes is being very villainous but in that sort of fallen angel way like you know hey a step in this direction and, and it's a totally different Story. It's a totally different outcome. He's a, he's he's perceived a totally different way, and it's kind of like that for 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 all the characters, you know. Uh, and and again, you talk about like the parallels, and it's like oh, there's yeah. there's the parallel of of those two, and and their bars in life, and there's the parallels between him and Hoke. Hoke is also a bit of a a you know corrupt dude. There's all all the cops are a little corrupt a little bent, you know, and it's like degrees of of corruption and degrees of of villainy. Junior could have fucking blown his brains out, you know? Junior didn't need to leave him a hundred bucks when he stole his teeth or whatever, right <laughs> right? his teeth soaking in a glass of whiskey. Oh God, dude. <laughs> just all the shots of like Fred Ward when he takes his teeth out, the, the,
1: the, like the gums, like the, the nasty, like gums. Oh. I mean, I do want to just point out, obviously there's, you know, the ultimate confrontation between, uh, Hoke mm. and Junior. Talk about fractured identity. Yeah. One of my favorite moments in like any movie ever. Right. And at this point, Hoke <laughs> has borrowed, uh, a, a hair trigger hand cannon from his, uh, a deranged, you know, sort of building manager, uh, and he fi- you know, he, uh, whatever, points the gun at a <laughs> gun at Junior and goes, free, Police! Freeze! Police! <laughs> <laughs> and they're both, you know, aiming at each other it's in the, the middle Spider of the street. Man it's meme, the yeah. fucking Spider-Man meme, yeah. right? <laughs> and these doppelgangers finally you know, confront each other and, and it results in chaos, but I also want to point out that like Again, everything in this movie, it's tight, it rhymes, there's like 1,000 plants and payoffs, this time around I was even thinking about the connection between the fingers because we open with this broken finger that sort of sets off the Mm. story and by the end of the film Alec Baldwin is going to have sort of the tips of one, (laughs) the fingers of one of his hands completely sliced off and then gathered up into a little rag and carried out of a coin shop Uh, and it's disgusting but again this irony you know this like these connections between all these little moments that have happened and are reverberating, you know?
0: When that woman at the, it was like a pawn shop, slices off Alec Baldwin's fingers and he just like unloads his gun on her <laughs> chest, the, the way she screams oh, yeah. is so awesome. I just want like, for the listeners, like we're just going to play that clip here on the on, the, on the gauntlet. Ah! ah! But yeah, it's it's an incredible climax um
2: those who seek out the film will not be disappointed yeah and I just thought even again since we have been like we've been talking about him as this sort of like you know Lucifer this this spirit from the sky this fallen angel again I just realized that you know the the assumed name he's been using is Gottlieb which roughly translated is like God's love, right, or love of God. In German, right, it would be Gottlieb, you know, God and Satan was the one that
0: God loved most of all. Oh, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. And, yeah, you know, ultimately, you know, Hoke gets his teeth back, and that is the most important thing about the whole story (laughs) is that this poor, disgraced man get his teeth back. Did you know that FX, at a certain point,
2: was trying to make a Hoke-Mosley TV series. I think you and I had a conversation about it back in the day when it was happening. There's a pilot. It got rejected. They shot... Ryan, I don't know if you knew this, but they shot... FX shot a pilot with Paul Giamatti as Hoke-Mosley, and they were going to make a series out of it. And I guess... The pilot must have been horrible. <laughs> like uh, they yeah. know, you can go see images on the internet if you yeah. and for the listeners if you if you didn't. I'm against know. Yeah. it for the record. The mistake
0: yeah. was not casting Paul Dooley as uh they got the wrong Paul. Should have been Paul Dooley. Uh Fred
2: Ward is still alive. Shout out to Fred Ward too. Again, exactly. like, you know Yeah, he
1: kills it in this movie, you know, underplaying it, but with his uh usual uh charm of his own, which is uh, a rugged charm, you know, and especially as Hulk, he's uh, he's a grotesque counterpoint to our uh, spirit in the sky that uh, we take this ride with. Honestly, you know? I, would,
2: I would have loved more Hulk Mosley stories. You know, it's a shame, because this movie... You know, I, 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 it's one of those movies, again, that, you know, when you read about its reception, you're just kind of like, what were people thinking back then? You know,
1: it just seemed like it for one reason or another, like it wasn't really a financial success. And Like it, Devil in a Blue Dress, I'll take five more of these, you know, like, absolutely. let's go, you know, big missed opportunity for sure. Totally. Well, I've been sitting here ever so
0: patiently. But I can see that Marsh brought his mailbag with him today, and I'm, uh, I'm itching to know what, what's
1: inside it. Uh, Marsh, do you mind digging into that bag? <laughs> You've got mail. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Uh, yeah, so we got, a, we got a message in the mailbag uh, from Timothy, and uh, I know at least uh, a few of us here will be amused by the subject header, A Fan's Notes. <laughs> oh shit. Very good. And uh Timothy writes, I've been meaning to write this for a long time but was finally spurred to do so by the shocking news you'd only only recently received your first letter to Marsha's mailbag.
2: <laughs> Dude didn't want to write cuz he thought we were like inundated with with letters yeah. so <laughs>
1: The Gauntlet is my favorite film podcast, and over the last year it's become a staple of my Tuesday rambles. I'm always impressed with how effortlessly all of you are able to incorporate film theory, film history, genre analysis, and production histories into each episode. I've also been delighted when the episodes have given me fresh perspective on films I thought I knew well. This was particularly true of the Comfort Film episode, which combined a sentimental favorite from my youth, Breaking Away with a film I've watched with my children when I visited my brother and his family, Good Burger. By the way, if you haven't seen it, it's interesting to compare Steve Tessich's decidedly more political script about post-high school comradeship for four friends with Breaking Away. It's been years since I've seen it. But even though it suffers from unfortunate casting in some of the major roles and surprisingly awkward direction by Arthur Penn, Four Friends is worth a look for another side of Tessage. Ugh! wow. I haven't seen it. Neither have I. But in addition to the gushing, I wanted to send a note to share the following story. My daughter is always asking me for podcast recommendations, and since she's in her sophomore year of high school, I suggested she try the Back to School episode. I remember seeing 3 O'Clock High on its initial release and thought she'd be interested in its absurdist take on the high school experience, but I was wrong, because the film she became obsessed with was First Graders. When I couldn't find it on any of our streaming services, I recommended we watch Homework on the Criterion channel instead. From its opening shots of the kids walking to school with their oversized book bags and posing for the camera to the amazing finale, she loved the whole film. Although she was sad about how few of the children said they felt encouraged, she's still on the hunt for first graders and hopefully will catch up with it someday. In the meantime, we're going to watch Close Up a personal favorite of mine. Just wanted to thank all of you for the role the gauntlet played in creating this connection. That's so touching. That is so That's sweet. That's beautiful. How wonderful. We get the best letters in Marsha's mailbag. I'm uh, telling
0: yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. This
2: it's, is a great mailbag. This is full of lovely treats. Yeah, and Tim don't worry. I, I, I have a feeling uh, you know, somehow, some way, uh, you'll you'll be able to see first graders very soon. Yeah, very soon
0: but you you know you made a smart choice by watching homework that's another excellent film um he made a couple films about school children uh kiristami did um and he did some really interesting educational shorts that were designed for children but are also unique and expressive and avant-garde in their own ways but in an accessible fun way because again they were initially designed for children
2: um you love to see it
0: great choice Thank you so much for the letter, by the way. Yeah, and I, I will follow through with that recommendation. I will I will watch Four Friends. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, uh, Andy, it was your topic this week. Oh, yeah. You got any uh, villains that you love to hate or hate to love you want to recommend on the S- podcast? So
2: many, so many, because, you know, I've often uh, perceived myself as a bit of a very good bad boy. You know, growing up... Uh, my friend's mom always referred to me as the Eddie Haskell of the neighborhood. So I think it's always been inside me, you know, a, a, a sort of kindred spirit with all these naughty protagonists. So I have quite quite a few and I, I could probably spend an hour going into them. So I, I, I won't, but I'll just, I'll give you just a, a couple that I really love and don't need to go into super detail, but Robert Walker as Bruno Antony, in Strangers on a Train is maybe my favorite Hitchcock villain and one of my my favorite charismatic villains of all time. He's just so, so charming and so attractive to me. Uh, On a very different note, uh, I think in a more like bigger kind of Hollywood action way, uh, Wesley Snipes as Simon Phoenix in Demolition Man, I think is just one of the most vibrant bad guys. And again, like in an interesting way, like the the weird, you know, sort of dystopian, Slash utopian future that he's trying to dismantle is is very appealing to me. You know this sort of guy that just finds this new world he lives in ridiculous. You don't um, want
1: every restaurant to be Taco Bell, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and and Hillary, my girlfriend, you know, when I was sort of like talking to her about this, and she was she saw me sort of like racking my brain about villains that you know you love. I explained it to her, and and she was just like what about caster Troy? And I was like, fuck yeah, dude. Nicholas Cage slash John Travolta as caster Troy. And again, another great parallel film about good guys and bad guys, but face off is, is, is definitely one that I, I, I didn't think of, but you know, my girlfriend. Yeah. So, so yeah, but so many, so many, too many. So it was my topic this week, but, but who's up next ryan you're up next right that's me yep Uh, you you guessed it so
0: you know thinking ahead thinking about the calendar year here and thinking about the gauntlet release schedule um you know i was looking at some holidays that were coming up and you know i i personally really appreciate a reminder every year when mother's day is rolling around and you know my next topic will land the week before Mother's Day. So I figured, you know what? Why don't we send everybody a nice reminder? And that will be a reminder to call your mom. So my topic for next week are the types of films that when you're watching them and you're so entranced by portrayals of motherhood that by the time the film's over, you're overwhelmed and all you can think to do is, I gotta give my mom a call. It's happened to me countless times at the cinema. And you know what? I'd like to have a couple more just to help, you know, help me remember. So I got to make sure I give my mom a call uh, coming up this Mother's Day. So that is the topic for next week. Call your mom. Will
2: do. I will call her. Yeah. I call my mom every day, so don't worry.
1: I don't need a reminder. But thank you. I'm into it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or Send an email to Marsh's mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks everyone. So Armin. What would you think, Time? Time?
2: What do you mean? Oh where you're guarding that food.
1: You Not know, like another con can take it away from you. <laughs> I was raising foster homes, you know.
2: Didn't get no dessert toss in the eighth grade.
1: Damn. I got a daughter in the eighth grade. Half my paycheck goes to orthodontist. She's got your teeth, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Join's about the only place he's got the time to work out to get a grip like that. I was an aerobics instructor.
1: Shoot the shit out of that theory.
0: (laughs) More Polars? Oh. Junior got the last one. I run out
1: and guess oh, no. Beer's gone I'm gone